Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com, your home to thoughtful conversations on film. Today, we'll be back with our fourth entry in our three films that got you through the 2020 pandemic interview series. For those of you just tuning in, in this series, I am speaking with a wide variety of friends, colleagues, and professionals working in the film industry, largely in my backyard of Oklahoma. I'll be talking with each guest about how the pandemic has impacted their line of work before talking about the three films that helped them get through it all. Today, I'll be joined by film studies educator, film critic, and Ward 2 city council person in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, James Cooper. I'll be talking with James about the importance of film and media literacy in today's culture and how the pandemic impacted how he taught his classes and interacted with his students before getting into the three films that got him through the 2020 pandemic. Now, before we we really jump into the, the meat and potatoes of today's conversation, I just wanted to quickly note... If you enjoyed today's interview, please consider leaving us a rating, review, and follow or subscribe on your preferred podcast app. It really is the most impactful way that you can support the show at this time. Or if you're really engaged with this idea, the three films that got you through the 2020 pandemic, another way that you can participate in this special series is by emailing your three films to our email address, thecinematropolis at gmail.com, or by sharing your picks by following us on Twitter at The Cinematrop or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Cinematropolis. Please send us your picks for a chance to have them heard later in the series. Now, I wanted to provide a little bit of background about today's very special guest, James Cooper. I connected with James several years ago now through our time working concurrently as film critics here in Oklahoma. He really has done it all. (laughs) His work detailing film, Oklahoma culture, federal hate crimes legislation, and Oklahoma City's LGBTQ plus community has appeared in a wide variety of publications, including the Oklahoma Gazette, the Huffington Posts, uh, and Nondoc. And he even wrote a very thoughtful piece for us here at the Cinematropolis back in June 2018 called The Coming of Age Through Queer Cinema. And I'll have that linked in today's show notes. Outside of his work as a writer, James is also an educator. He formerly served in Oklahoma City Public Schools, specifically as an avid middle school college preparation teacher. And uh, again, he is a a published writer who lives in Oklahoma City's historic Paseo neighborhood. Currently, he works as an adjunct English professor at the University of Central Oklahoma and as an adjunct film studies and philosophy professor at Oklahoma City University, where he serves on OCU's Arts and Sciences Advisory Board. And of course, I think it's it's very important to note that in April 2019, James took the oath of office to begin his first term on the Oklahoma City Council as the representative for Ward 2. As city council person, he also serves as a trustee on the Central Oklahoma Transportation and Parking Authority Board of Trustees. Needless to say, uh, James is not only one of the smartest and most active people I've ever had the pleasure of knowing, But he's also easily one of the most empathetic, and I think this is a side of him you're really going to hear come out throughout our conversation today. Oh, and by the way, did I mention he's also very passionate about horror films? Uh, Most notably, he loves to go to bat for Scream 2, which you'll hear about today. Another thing I want to note about James is that when talking to him, I've really learned that he's not just giving you his quick opinion. He's telling his story through 
well-read references to everything from Richard Linklater's Waking Life to essays like The Myth of Total Cinema. He's not just providing a, a, a quick take. You know, he's not just rapid fire throwing his opinion out there, but rather he is taking you on a, a journey to ensure that his perspective uh, is clear, honest, and grounded so that you can really understand the, the full picture of what his point of view is. Uh, we're going to jump into the conversation here in a moment, but I do want to note that we recorded this in mid-January, which was before his spring semester had started and also before Inauguration Day had occurred. So there's a couple of references uh, that allude more towards that uh, January time period. So how exactly did the pandemic change the way James thought about education and the value of media literacy? Well, stay tuned for one moment to hear what James has to say. All right, everybody, I'm so excited to be back with another very special guest as part of our three films that got you through the 2020 pandemic series. I'm very happy to be joined by a, a friend and a film critic, a film studies educator, and also the Ward 2 City Council person here in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And I should probably mention also my city council person, James Cooper. James, welcome to the Cinematic Schematic. Hi, thanks for having me, Caleb. Last year was kind of wild, right? But we did make it through 2020. All things considered, how are you doing today? Since we're playing the film game, um, I'm doing all right. Thanks for asking. You know, we survived 2020, but it kind of feels a little bit, and I say this as a horror fan, but it kind of feels a little bit like um, Laurie Strode surviving, well, you know, Halloween, and then Halloween 2 picking right up the same night. And it's like, gotcha, we're not done. That's right. The the, the next uh, round of horror could potentially ensue. Yes, yes. Okay, so James, I, I, I think we, we are going to get to those three films here in a little bit. But first, I, I really just want to talk a little about, you know, your profession and how the events of last year impacted what you do. So, of course, as I mentioned there, you're an educator. You teach in the subjects of English, film, and philosophy. Before we get into the, the full picture, I just want people to know exactly where you're coming from. Why do you think the, the literacy of film and pop culture continues to be so important, especially as we're, we're coming out of a pandemic? Most important is media literacy right now. There was a PBS documentary you might have seen uh, came out last year called The United States of Conspiracy. Did you see that? I did see that. Uh, Frontline, always doing just incredible investigative journalism. And, um, you know, I, I finished that documentary just just so worried about um, our city, state, and country. Um, I think media literacy is, is is at the root of so much of our of what ails us. Um, if you went to a K through twelve school and you had a film studies or media studies class, you're you're in you're in the minority, like the the like smallest of minorities. Um, most of us don't learn film history, television history, radio history. And, and that's really important. Um, you know, the 2016 election was also another moment that stood out to me because seeing the Russian interference in that election in terms of creating memes and gifts and that disinformation campaign they unleashed, um, it didn't surprise me as a film studies scholar because, uh, and you know very well, um, who was at the forefront 100 years ago Um uh, doing experiments on what editing was like in, in its infancy, how do you take one image, put it up against the next, and then in that third image, generate meaning for the person viewing it. Well, that was, that was the Soviets, you know, 
And so that was not a huge step for me come 2016 to go, oh, yeah, of course, of course, the Soviets are doing this. In the same, uh, you know, you could also note how in the 40s, you know, our country created um, propaganda films to get people to fight uh, in World War II. Now, again, defeating fascists, very important goal. At the same time, we also have to acknowledge um, the role Hollywood and filmmaking played in encouraging folk to join the war effort. Or you look in Germany to a, on a 180 spin, right, during that same period of time, watching um, Hitler and his folk take over the existing uh, German film industry um, and its directors through fear and intimidation um, to make movies uh, denigrating Jewish folk, queer folk, people of color, and rallying around that sort of nationalism um, and, and eventually, you know, fascism. And so, yeah, I think film plays and media studies just plays a critical role to understanding how media uh, mediates reality for us. None of us have met Barack Obama or Donald Trump or Joe Biden, but we think we know them because we've seen them. And I think it's critical for us to start doing a better job of educating people uh, what film has been from 1895 to present, how uh, individuals and governments can manipulate images to uh, move us in whatever direction that they want. And so just really teaching kids, and especially as we move into adulthood, how to put on our critical thinking caps when we are consuming any image, any image. And, you know, that's going to be a major issue going forward because here's the other thing, you know, the devil, uh, as they like to say, the devil knows the Bible too. And so it's really easy for someone to go on YouTube these days and hear a version of what I just said, like, don't trust any of these images, right? Um, but not really giving that fuller context um, of, of what's going on there. So um, I think we're, we're, we, we've made a nation of, of conspiracy theorists, and we're going to have to undo that. And so media literacy plays a role in that. Right. It, it seems it also seems like, you know, there the tools have been never been like more accessible. And just thinking about like uh, deep, how many deep fakes have sort of like kind of come to the surface in the last couple of years. And I mean, even down to seeing like Jordan Peele doing his just to prove a point, uh, showing people his Barack Obama deep fake and like saying, hey, this text out here. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's really important um, just with the amount of misinformation or, or half truths that, that get kind of spun out from any, you know, website or, uh, you know, it could be film or television show even. Let's talk a little bit about your day-to-day as an educator and exactly what that looked like pre-pandemic. So what did the job and the process of planning classes and film studies curriculum look like? So from August of 2015 through August of uh, 2019, I was teaching uh, as a uh, college preparation teacher uh, on the south side of our city in our public school systems, Jefferson Middle School. Um, Previously, I was teaching as an adjunct in film studies in English, and uh, we were having such a teacher crisis, you recall, in Oklahoma that they moved toward an emergency certification um, process. And so I went and signed up for that. And uh, toward the end, as I was running for office and I realized I was going to have to give up my teaching job uh, in the K-12 through system, uh, I started slowly making my way back into adjuncting again and teaching film studies at Oklahoma City University. 
and that's what I'm doing now is, you know, uh, philosophy and film studies and English, uh, also at UCO university of central Oklahoma in Edmond and, uh, the planning, what that looks like, what it looks like, uh, well, it would be a bit different today, but what it's always been is, you know, at the start of a semester, I would create a syllabus that, you know, um, that I thought would engage people from the beginning. Uh, I got that from an undergrad professor of mine in film studies at OU who, in her intro class, she would begin not with an art film or uh, something from, you know, uh, that Soviet era we talked about in the uh, teens and 20s, but with Die Hard. <laughs> uh, she was like, let's start with something they know and and then use that as the entry into the the bigger story, as it were. And so I'm, I've, that's always been the start of the semester for me is like, what's, what is it? Ah, The Dark Knight Rises or Ah, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Just something to get the conversation going. Uh, so creating that syllabus and then trying to align specific films that, you know, help the students understand, you know, whatever that week's focus is, whether it's genre, editing, cinematography, um, you know, Maison scene, whatever it is, trying to find the right film to pair with um, the right scholarship. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, that that's tough. And, and, and that shifts from semester to se- semester. Um, and then the day to day as when I was doing film studies, it was very much, you know, teach probably two days a week. Um, um, and then there would be a screening usually like outside of class that we would do on campus in a, a screening room. Um, and usually, you know, let's just say it was Monday was class where we're introducing these concepts um, in the readings Wednesday might or Tuesday might be the screening, uh, for the film. So now they're seeing an example of those concepts. And then that Wednesday in class would be the, you know, exploration of those concepts through what they just saw and kind of being able to pull that film up on screen and do a closer reading, a, a closer textual reading to find examples of that concept and kind of let the students uh, tease all that out. And that just happened, would happen week by week. Um, so that requires in-person classes, in-person screenings, in-person class. So that's the typical kind of layout of a, of a film studies class. And that's what it was for me as an undergrad as well, and in grad school. Well, I mean, so of course the, uh, the face-to-face time, both in the classroom and in those sort of extracurricular screenings, pretty important. How, how did the, the shutting down of schools really impact your work as an educator? So, you know, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying about the the country not really uh, prioritizing media studies for folk. Um, when I re- when I won office in February of 19, took office in April of 19, uh, again, there were current city charter uh, ordinances that prevented a K through 12 teacher from serving on council and serving in the K through 12 classroom. And I knew that I knew that going into that election, but I thought so important it was to run at that particular time to try and um, get youth centers and further investments in public transit and bike and walkability infrastructure. Um, I thought those things were so critical. And normally when you run for office, right, you, you can make promises, but you're really beholden to that budget, that annual budget. but when I say in this particular time, as you know, we have that one penny cent sales tax 
mm-hmm. known as MAPS here in Oklahoma City. And um, that's not common. That you know, the first one was back in '93. Then again, the late '90s. Another one in 2009. So 2019, when I won, I knew that was coming. And I was like, I'm going to run. I'm going to go ask people what their concerns are for their neighborhood, hopes for our city. And we're going to fight like the Dickens to get that into maps for, and we did. And, and, uh, if, if I, if I accomplished nothing else, it, 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 it just setting that in motion was just a wonderful moment. So I knew I had to quit K through, I knew it was worth losing my K through 12 job to go fight for those things. What I didn't see coming was the voters finding out about that at the end and being like, Oh, we don't like that at all. And they have, as you remember that, that, special election to change that charter ordinance. But by that time I had already said, I'm going to go, I'd made plans to go teach at OCU and UCO as I had done prior to teaching at the middle school level. And um, enrollment was already at a place at OCU um, where we, where I taught film previously, um, we didn't have enough enrollment numbers to make it where uh, adjuncts could teach um, those classes, we really needed to make sure that our full-time um, professors um, had the workload that they needed to be able to, you know, feed their families, feed themselves. Um, so that was already a bit of a peril there uh, for film studies. Um, and it didn't really matter how successful my classes had been, you know, whether it was teaching a television studies class or a children's cinema class, and the students just really giving me phenomenal feedback. Um, it just, the numbers weren't there. And then COVID hit and it just made it all the more difficult to, uh, I mean, imagine going to um, high school seniors um, who this time last year, well, around heading around this time last year would have been learning there's a pandemic. It's highly contagious based on, you know, droplets through one's mouth and through one's nose. Um and we want you to sit in a room together. Um, that that's a hard sell, uh, especially with the rising cost of college tuitions all across this country. How do you make that sell? And moreover, how do you make that sell to a student when so much as you know the college experience is about the college experience? Like it's about the dorms. It's about um, you know being in those screening rooms, for instance, as film studies students, being able to watch on a giant movie theater size screen a film the way that director and that crew intended for for us to view it um so those are really difficult sales to say to kids like hey come on come on to campus and no matter how safe we make it like that's 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 a tough sell and so our enrollment numbers went down at ocu our enrollment numbers went down at uco um i use a lot of film and we can talk about this later but i use a lot of film and television um, in my uh, philosophy classes, I teach at OCU, and I, us- I usually teach two a semester, um, an arts and human values class. Um, but where normally I would teach two, and I did in the fall, this spring, our enrollment campus wide, no longer just talking about film studies anymore, we're talking about campus wide, our enrollment numbers were down just enough throughout where I'll only be teaching the one class. Super thankful for that. Um, and then uh, at UCO, my two English classes, um, there are going to be some adjuncts who won't, won't, who, who, who were going to teach two or three, 
now all of a sudden finding themselves that they're not. Um, so it's really, the pandemic has shifted um, the way we think about delivering higher education and it's made uh, the world a bit more unstable for, for us adjunct professors. Yeah. Well, I just think too, I mean, going back to that, what you mentioned about the college experience, I know so much of what made that experience unique wasn't the screenings were a big part of it, but also those conversations you'd have both formally right after the film with your professors present, but also like your, when you're walking back to your dorm room or with your roommate or some of your classmates, uh, like at 2am in like a cafe or something like that, like those, those conversations is really a big part of the experience. It's I imagine it's quite hard to, to replicate or even foster as a professor um, just because like the thing about Zoom calls is like there's not really a lot of water cooler talk or casual conversations. It's all everyone has to be very intentional about when and where they're having uh, calls and there's always a purpose behind it versus the more kind of casual um, conversations that people are having. I mean, is that something that you personally are, are really missing? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, hearing you describe your experiences, it's I've, I've experienced it now on both ends as both a, a undergrad and grad student in film and screen studies. And now as a, you know, adjunct professor in that field, like there would be moments where I'd be, um, as an instructor, um, after classes, after screenings, and those, uh, uh there's always a handful, right. Of those students who are like, kind of gravitate over and they're like, Hey, let's talk about that blue velvet we just watched, you know? Um, and, and, uh, it's, it's, and not just talking about what we just watched, but like, it starts going through the Rolodex of what they've already seen in their head. So they're like, well, that reminded me of this and have you seen it? And there's, you know, it's that cross-cultural, you know, exchange that's happening where people are making recommendations to me as their instructor. I'm going, oh yeah, well, if you like that, then you'll also, and so, yeah, it's really about building in that way, a community and, um, and learning more from each other. To, to shift gears just a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about your specific experience as a film goer or you're a member of the Oklahoma Film Critics Circle. Uh, how did like the, the closing of movie theaters impact how you watched movies, uh, if at all? As you mentioned earlier, I serve on our Oklahoma Film Critics Circle. I was a film critic from uh, 03 uh, through 09 for a, an LGBT uh, Q newsletter here uh, at the time. And uh, when it ceased publication in 09, I kind of kept my own blog and a lot of people followed me onto that. But then come 2012, 13, I was like, I, I have a writing project I want to take on that was much bigger than a film review. Um, and, and I just, my brain will not let me write multiple things at once. And so I started a creative writing MFA in 13 at OCU while I was teaching there and, um, and just shifted my focus to that. I would still do an annual top 10 list at the end uh, as a freelancer. Uh, it was so much fun. And uh, in fact, uh, just sorry, I, I almost forgot. Um, uh, a couple years ago when my friend Dahmer came out, you remember that movie? Oh, yeah. yes. <laughs> I had so much fun with that film. And I put it on my top 10 list that year um, doing freelance for Nondoc, a local publication, as you know. And um uh, I mentioned how, how strong the lead performance was and uh, cited that actor. Next thing I know, Twitter, he had gotten a hold of it and shared a link to that non-doc story. Very nice. And yeah, it was so cool. 
my middle school students, as I mentioned, you know, I was teaching middle school for a few years there. They were like, wait, you don't know who that is, Mr. Cooper? And I was like, no, I don't. And they're like, and they start. they gave me an education on Disney and, and they're like, he's in a, he's playing a serial killer. It's like, mm-hmm. and so, but anyway, um, yeah, so I've, I've kind of taken that break, but usually it would be, you know, I go to a movie, I go to, I love Tinseltown during the day. Those are some cheap tickets for a great experience. Uh, I love going to Tower Theater, the, the independent theater here near my neighborhood, um, rodeo cinema. And that's just not what happened last year. You could, it, I mean, almost for all of the tragedies, and there are so many as a film person, it just was so painful to not be able to go to a movie theater. Um, I mean, it was, it, 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 I have such spiritual experiences when I am watching a movie. And, and in that way, a theater is almost like church. And for that to just be removed, um, it's just horrible. And if anyone's like, what is he talking about church? Go watch Waking Life, the Linklater film. And there's like that whole scene, remember, where they talk about that kind of holy experience that happens when one is watching uh, a film, the potential for it, at least. If one is like turning off their phone and turning off their, their mind from other things and just going, I am in this film. This is a work of art. Let's have this Greek catharsis. So it was hurtful for that last year. So um, starting March 15th, I um, just started keeping a list of everything that I was watching at home. And that's how I watched everything. I, I don't have cable. I got rid of that years ago. But I do have my Roku player and I have a few apps like Amazon, Netflix, Canopy, um, and the Criterion Channel. Excuse me. And so I would just start watching things. I would watch things from my own private collection. I have around 300 or so movies that I've collected since 1999 when DVDs first came out. Um, and uh, I, and I have them, they're like on cube shelves, you know, and they're alphabetical cause I'm that guy. And uh, I went cube by cube and would pick a film each morning when I would wake up. First thing in the morning was either I would wake up, I'd make coffee and I'd go find a film from and just in alphabetic order. I pulled off the shelf and I would just watch. And it was a way to start my day before I did any work for school, any work for council, self-care, I think they call it. And uh, it was such an enriching experience because it reawakened me to my love for film. Um, so much of my world has been so focused on city council in the last couple of years. Um, running for office and then serving. So this really brought me back in a way that I'll never, never forget. Um, and then by the end of the year, very similar to you, and I'm kind of curious from your own experience, you know, by the end of the year, um, all those screeners from the movie studio started arriving, whether they were virtual links or, or DVDs. And so once school was done at the end of November, beginning of December, my days were just like, I turned off social media I, um, I literally would just watch two, three, sometimes four movies a day. Yeah. Well, I really like how you're describing it as a a very sort of spiritual fulfillment. And, um, I know, you know, I think you and I share that in common and a couple of other friends where, you know, I think I'd ask someone, uh, Laurent Chapman, who's co-hosted many of these podcasts with me and, 
uh, I texted him, gosh, I want to say it was some, I hadn't talked to him in a couple months because pandemic, it was like in May. I think I'm going to text him. I said, Hey, how's everything going? Just checking up. And I was, he, he, he was like, I, I just, it's like, I can't breathe. I can't go to the movies, you know, because it really is. Um, I know for me, I, I fell off movie watching for a while, a lot of television shows, which is kind of strange, but it's, it's one of those things where I didn't realize how much having a movie every week in the theater, two or three movies a week. Cause I go to the theater two or three times a week, every week, but how much that that kept it helped me keep up with all the new releases. And the other thing is when I'm when I'm there, you kind of describe it as a spiritual, like almost like temple like experience. Um, I'm never distracted when I go see something in a theater. Like I don't worry about my phone. I can just zone in. Um, but when I'm at home on my couch, it's way easier for me to or even like either, oh, this chore needs to be in. Oh, what's so-and-so saying on Twitter or something? So uh, I applaud you for being able to shut off social media in your own home. I'm working on it, um, but as it will. It's, uh, I appreciate the kind words, but we're in that struggle together. I disappeared off social media a week or two around before Christmas, snuck back on the day before the attack on our Capitol. Oh, boy. Uh, just to wish my friend a happy birthday and then got right back off. And then that Wednesday, I was like, oh, I think I need to be on social media today um, as I was watching live what was happening. Yep. And um, no, I'm really going to be pulling back from from that and just social media and just kind of probably only being on there, you know, once or twice a week um, just for my own mental health. I think it's I don't think it's a, a healthy place for, for us if we're if we don't moderate our um, interactions with it and you nailed it like being at home and at first I was just beating myself up so much because I'd be watching a movie and I grab my phone yep. <laughs> and that you're right when you go to a theater you don't do that that's not what I do but here I was I'd be watching something I'm just like ooh, uh, you know um, the Guardian or the time New York Times or whatever or NPR and I'm just I'm and finally at the end of the years I started reading other critics top 10 lists I saw some of them address it and and it made me feel so much better so like how it how could we not look at our phones when you know um every the real world is 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 on fire literally on fire our website is on fire you know a, a plague that we the likes of which we have not seen in a hundred years is killing you know i think it's almost four hundred thousand americans and that, and that is not showing a sign of letting up. Um, I mean, think about it. we could have five hundred thousand dead Americans, um, yeah, in the next couple months, and 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 that is, yeah. So it it was an interesting thing where film, you kind of had to ask yourself like, what's the point? Like, why am I watching this? Like, what is the when when all of these very real the historic reckoning with the legal legacy of racism and white supremacy you see the protests taking place 93 to 94 percent of them we know peacefully by the way um when you see those sorts of um uh protests you can't help but ask yourself like what should i be putting my attention on watching this or you know, watching uh, Annie Hall, which by the way wouldn't be my choice, but you get you get you get what I'm saying. So, yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, I, I just to echo the sentiment, I think that's sort of the challenge. And I think it seems like most people I know who are really inundated in the film culture and film watching kind of went through a similar journey at various points in the year, where you're you feel bad for trying to escape, but then you feel nice because you're able to unplug, but then you're also simultaneously distracted sometimes. So it's like an escape, but it's like. 
at times was an escape with sort of like that lingering feeling of there's a lot of craziness going on. I'm trying to figure out how to avoid it. But I also think to your point, um, we, we, we did see a lot of great films come out this year. Mm -hmm. I know we're going to talk about that in a moment, but, uh, I mean, whether it was a, a comedy like Palm Springs that was quite enjoyable or the, the small acts series, there's a lot of powerful films that still were able to, to come out and I think address some of the things that you were talking about there a moment in a, in a meaningful way. Uh, now, I guess uh, taking it a little bit back to the the film education perspective, what exactly did you do uh, to to pivot and adjust to the circumstances to ensure that your students received as little disruption as possible? Two English composition classes at UCO, two arts and human values classes at OCU, and um, I'll, I'll I'll give you uh, the kind of last two semesters in, in this one. So when the pandemic hit, keeping in mind the, um, the, what do you call it? The shelter in place moment, the moment where the Utah jazz player tested positive that March 15th moment, that was right before our spring break. And, um, we shifted everything online. Everything shifted online. I learned what zoom was. I had no idea. Microsoft teams didn't know. And coincidentally, I had decided the fall before I created a class where for the first part of the class, we would watch um, a PBS documentary on the Italian Renaissance and the Medici family and compare that to a book uh, written by a uh, New York Times writer, uh, uh, his best-selling book, Boomtown on OKC history. And we would compare the two uh, Renaissance uh, stories, um, which at first students like, what? And I was like, trust me. And, um, and it was, it was so revealing for both Renaissance stories. Um, the second half of the class, um, in fall of 18 or sorry, fall of 19 after I won was, um, looking at media violence. It's something I've always researched. That's really what my focus has been as a film studies person. But then UCO approached me at the end of that semester and said, Hey, we have this, uh, this, this program here where we're really trying to help create a support system, foster a support system for our African-American male students, especially. And so they're trying to get them enrolled in uh, kind of as groups in, in certain classes, you know, comp one, two, whatever. And they asked me if I'd be interested. And I was like, well, I'd be interested, but I'd, I'd want to shift the curriculum, I think, a little bit uh, to meet that. And uh, they're like, go for it. And what that evolved into was uh still doing boomtown with the italian renaissance but then for the second half of the semester um a six-part hour-long episode each documentary from pbs on african-american history and what i did was i paired that i said episode by episode we'll do a film featuring black characters not necessarily a film directed by someone black but just the representation and there would be, I was like, I will give you all a very basic prompt, you know, compare someone or something from this episode to someone or something in this film. So like an example would be, they were going to watch and did watch Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And then they, which they loved. Um, and they would compare that to the second episode of that documentary where it's from 1800 to uh, 1861 or something like that. The age of slavery, I think it's called. Well, there's not an obvious comparison there. Those students found it. 
one by one by one. They were like, okay, Miles Morales reminds us of former Congressman uh, Robert Smalls when he commandeered this ship from the South to make his way to freedom in the North. And I'm just sitting back because I didn't know what they were going to say and do. And they just, oh my gosh, took it in and everywhere. But that part of the course, the many rivers in the black films, that did not start until that shelter in place started. So I had this whole plan where I was going to have the movies on reserve for them in the library so they could watch them on their own or whatever. Couldn't do that now. Um, So since it all shifted online, I went online and put uh, those prompts in a discussion thread week by week. And then, you know, they just responded in the thread. So that was that. In this fall, let's have a spring semester during all of the pandemic. In the fall, um, OCU returned to in-person. UCO is a hybrid of some students were taking it in-person where the camera was coming into the class for the extended classroom kids. So there was the extended classroom being online. So there was this camera for them to be able to see what was going on. And then there was um, the in-class students. And I kept that same syllabus because I, I I was having so much fun with it and the students were too. And um, so now what it is or what it was in the fall was, you know, I said, hey, the Medici documentary and the Black History documentary, those are on Amazon. There's a six month free trial. Go do that. So that's how they were able to watch it. Um, and then I only chose films that were on Netflix or Amazon so that students could take advantage of that trial. Um, and that, that, that worked this semester. I'm even more excited because what I'm doing, same sort of syllabus set up to Renaissance stories, the black history for the second half, but this time they're going to do HBO's Watchmen. Wow. I'm, it's the hundred year anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre. And I thought, you know, it's not a film class. Neither of these are. Uh, that's why we're reading an entire book. Boomtown. We're watching these two PBS documentaries, um, exploring the relationship between art and place. That's kind of the theme for these classes. And um, it just clicks like everyone's watching television. So let's talk about television. And um, so I'm, I'm buying um, DVDs of Watchmen to put on reserve in their library so you can get it from the circulation desk for free, go into one of the private rooms, watch it by themselves. Or if a student wants to, they can do that free HBO trial for a month and watch it that way because it's th- those episodes I compacted into about a month. And then instead of asking them to do Amazon and all that, I found there's this Metropolitan Library System site called Hoopla. Did you know about this? I have never heard of Hoopla. Tell me more. You can go on there and you'll find that Renaissance documentary. You'll find Many Rivers to Cross. You'll find a lot of documentaries. You'll also find another film that I used to start off this particular uh, semester for the last three semesters, Night of the Living Dead. Um, They they have a lot of movies uh, on there. And so I'm really excited about that because um, all the student has to have is a library card. And they can stream those documentaries right from their phone or their laptop. Uh, they can stream Night of the Living Dead. And then all I, you know, from there have to ask them to do is like, hey, just I'm going to put um, Watchmen on reserve for you. 
uh, watching the library that way, or you can, um, um, you know, do this free HBO trial. Um, so it's really changed uh, how I would normally, normally I'd put these movies on reserve for the English students and the philosophy students, just put it on reserve at the circulation desk. They'd go grab it, watch it at home, watch it in the library. But the, the very delivery of it all has changed, but I'm actually excited this semester to be able to explore that because we're, I think the only films we're watching are Django and, and, um, well, three Django, Night Living Dead. And, um, <laughs> this, you'll get a kick. Uh, Evil Dead two has <laughs> nothing to do with any of these themes, but I needed an essay assignment early in the semester where I could have them kind of explore genre tropes, um, giving them scholarship about those tropes, the occult film in this instance, and then being able to demonstrate that they can do textual analysis, rhetorical analysis, using peer-reviewed scholarship, right? And um, so I was like, how do I, what do I pair this occult essay with? And I kept looking on Netflix and Amazon. And, and finally, I saw Evil Dead 2 was there. I was like, well, that's horror and funny. So that'll be fun. Anyway, so that's it's just been it's been all over the place. So I'm excited to talk to them about how they watch things, kind of the way you're asking me. And to clarify, when you said Django, uh, just for listeners, that is Django Unchained or the original? No, the 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 Unchained. We watched it last semester. That and Into the Spider Verse were the students' just clear favorites. They, they everything else they liked, they loved those two, and they paired. We paired Django with. Um, a, a documentary episode where it was um i want to say it was definitely during jim crow so it wasn't during slavery but it was like i want to say from like 1897 to 1940s and you wouldn't think the comparison like well but this is a movie about slavery so what are we talking about but those students just ran with it. they're like well this makes sense because Django's this you know freed slave and yet the structures of the society tell him he's not and it dictates where he can and cannot go. And they're like, that's Jim Crow. And it's like, ooh. And so, and by the way, that's those students. That's those students. They they figure all I all I do as their instructors just say, you figure out where the comparison is here. And they, man, it, it was, it was, it was fun. And, and this is probably a, a separate podcast, but I, I really appreciate the choice of Watchmen. Of course, blew up year last year, year and a half since it aired. I don't know is that is that one obviously being so integral to Oklahoma's history. And I and as far as I can tell, the first time the Tulsa race massacre has been portrayed on the screen. Do you anticipate this being one that you'll go back to in the, again in the future? I do. I think what forced my hand uh, to to change this semester. Uh, was that I had, much to my surprise, I had several English Comp 1 students at UCO sign up for Comp 2. Well, I had just planned to keep doing the same syllabus because I and strengthening it, you know, each semester. But then it clicks like, oh, no, like I can't just give them the same thing. And I was like, well, what if I gave them for the first half something that was the same, but instead, you know, for Comp 2, since it's more about research, not just asking them to make those comparisons, but saying, who's the source that stood out to you in this episode? Like who's talking at you? What are their credentials at the bottom? Why are we listening to them? And having them cite that person as they're then also citing their comparison. So it's like, so you made this comparison, who helped you think through that? 
and just really getting them thinking about sourcing information and the credibility of peer review, excuse me, the importance of credibility and peer reviewed sources. So that's going to, that's, we did not do that in comp one. And that's going to force the comp two students, like they can't fake it. Like they can't be like, I already watched it. So I know it's like, no, you did it. Not like this. And then with the, um, the many rivers to cross documentary and Watchmen, I'm going to do the same thing. It's like, no, you don't, it's not that you watched it once and you're done. Now go back and you tell me not just who your comparison is or what it was, but who's the scholar? Like, who's the scholar here? So it's a way to really force them to understand what close readings are and slowing down the research process. And then ultimately, I didn't, because they were these new students, I was like, well, I don't want to give them the same films. That doesn't quite work. And then I, I just started realizing the, the anniversary of the race massacre was here. They're already reading Boomtown about Oklahoma City's history. The, the Many Rivers to Cross documentary talks about the race massacre. So it just kind of felt like it, it, the, the transition was just there for us. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's going to be a way for the, the comp students who were with me last semester to really see their research skills and critical thinking skills go that much deeper. It'll be fun also to explore their writing more deeply, too. And then the OCU students who are seeing it for the first time, um, you know, I, I think what will end up happening is, uh, and I'll just be curious to hear your thoughts, but I think that in the fall, it'll probably be the syllabus that I did in the fall with the films. And then in the spring, it'll be the, the Watchmen. And so that way it'll be, you know. Well, it provides opportunities to look at television versus film as well. Um, and other, other like, cause, cause I mean, especially with the way things have been moving this year, it seems like television's only going to continue to grow in, in popularity. Especially with those streaming services now, right. Um, moving into production, right. They're no longer just the uh, exhibition, um, but they are, they're playing that, that production role too. And so, yeah, I think Netflix and Amazon and, and Hulu are, um, we, we, we as film folk are going to have to really rethink how we uh, talk about and teach them, teach, teach our field. Right. Well, I mean, I think the two examples that come to mind, just when I think about how sort of that, that field is changing is, I mean, I mentioned the, the small acts series from Steve McQueen earlier. Uh, there was actually some debate in the Oklahoma film critics circle about whether or not those were films or not. You know, they aired on television or aired as a series on Amazon. I think it aired on BBC over in the UK. And there was a whole rationale that Steve McQueen wanted people who wouldn't actually make it out to movie theaters. There was a lot of conversation, I mean, both in the film critic circle, but also just online about, hey, do these qualify as films? But outside of the fact, the way that they were sort of released, they really do look and sound and are produced like five individual films. So it's just it's yeah. interesting. And then I also think about uh, another really popular you know, sort of miniseries that came out this year on Netflix was Queen's Gambit. Uh, you know, it's a one off. It very well could have been a movie. They just stretched it out over several different episodes. because They thought that would you know be the best fit for the story. So I don't know. It's an interesting time for, for media. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, I finished the OCU syllabus yesterday after we finish this interview, I'll uh, create the, the UCO one. And theirs is going to be a little bit different because they're, you know, the OCU students, they're just, um, in terms of writing something, I mentioned Evil Dead earlier. I don't think I'm going to have them write that that essay. That's just going to be more to kind of explore um, the genre of, of the occult, see how it transitions from 68 with Night of the Living Dead to, you know, the, the 80s. Um, 
So, and they're going to do a research paper, like, and they'll know very early in the semester, like, you know, I want a proposal on what movie or TV show or book or album or video game you want to research to explore the relationship between art and place. Like how did place shape that text you, you're, you're reading or you're watching or you're listening to. Um, and so they'll, they'll just have that one assignment in addition to those weekly responses. Right. But UCO is, is different because it's a, it's a research class. So they, they're going to have to write like a, you know, they're going to demonstrate they understand rhetorical analysis at the beginning with that evil dead essay you're probably familiar with film critic, uh, film scholar, Carol Clover and men, women and chainsaws. That's the essay that they're reading is the opening up one. Um, everyone always talks about her body himself because that's where she comes up with the final girl theory. And I love that essay. And I think it's great. But I think we need to also talk about the occult genre one where she's talking about all these supernatural films and the role of gender there, uh, because that subgenre has been the most profitable one in the last 20 years in America, the conjuring, whatever. Right. Um, so I love exploring that with them. So they'll write that essay and then they'll also, similar to OCU students, write me a proposal for what they want to research, give me some annotations and then write an essay um, in their way. But they're also, when they read, when they watch Watchmen, they're going to read from a book. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called Make Room for Television. Ooh, title's familiar. I have not read it myself, though. It's worth your time. Um, one of my professors in grad school, uh, not my creative writing MFA, but the work I did before in English and screen studies, um, she was a television scholar, which until I got to grad school, I did not know that was a thing. Um, but she, her, one of her professors wrote that book. And it's kind of seen as a seminal text for us um, in, in media studies. And so I'm excited to read that because it's like the early history. And I want to say early history, I mean like, the early middle class that happens after the civil war, um, the shape of the home. And then eventually where the television fits in, in terms of furniture within, and, and those conversations about it as furniture uh, and those conversations about the negativity it could be bringing into the home in terms of influencing family in, in not good ways. So I'm excited to read that history with the students and then just kind of hearing them, what their responses are to it and how they think that that's changed in the present day. Um, what's similar, what's different. So I, I, I'm very excited to hear their responses this semester. Yeah, man, I'm going to check that book out again, just kind of thinking about this whole conversation about how the, the media of television and film and that line is becoming a little blurrier. I think that's a, I think some really interesting and important context and history to have when, when thinking about, thinking about how it, you know, how these things are changing today. Let's actually shift gears a little bit. We've already talked quite a bit about your 2021, but you know, on the, on the whole, does it seem like it's shaping up about the same, uh, looking up a little bit, or maybe just entirely different than what you did last year? I'm very hopeful about the ramping up of vaccine production, uh, not just vaccine production, but the um, supplies associated with the administering of the vaccine. So I've talked to her uh, every Friday. I'm on a... Uh, Zoom call with uh, OKC County Health officials and Metro elected officials uh, learning updates about the pandemic and now the vaccine. And, um, you know, I asked them a few weeks ago, I was like, I'm to understand there's a supply chain problem here. Are we affected by it? What's going on? So we need gloves, syringes, like those sorts of things to be able to administer the vaccine. Um, and then more doses of the vaccine themselves. So I'm really hopeful that the the new administration uses the Defense Production Act 
similar to the way that FDR did during World War II, uh, to ramp up production of those supplies and of the, um, the vaccine um, so that we can administer so much more. Give me an example. OKC County Health, I asked them yesterday, how many doses are you all requesting versus how many we receive? 25,000 a week we've asked for, just our county, 25,000. 6,900 we received. Oh, a lot of work to be done there. Yikes. Yeah. So when, when we look at why folk are signing up for appointments who are 65 plus, because we're in that phase where they should be receiving it, and we wonder, why aren't, why aren't there enough appointments? It's because there's not enough supply. Um, and and we are in historic unprecedented times, which call for our historic unprecedented measures. And looking back to the way we ramped up the production, only the Defense Production Act would allow us to utilize industry to focus its its just everything on this sort of production. And um, so I'm hopeful we'll do that um, so that we can actually meet President-elect Biden's goal of, you know, 100 million people vaccinated in um, his first 100 days or something like that. But to be honest, I, I, I just think that it's going to take through summer before we get to people outside of that K through 12, 65 plus people with comorbidities. Um, I, I still think we have a ways to go. And then, oh my gosh, I mean, our essential workers are people working at grocery stores and fast food. I just, it's just horrible. And so my hope is that by the end of, by, by fall, we're in a better place. And I, I hope that's where we are because I think our enrollment numbers depend on that at the uh, higher education level. I think our K through 12 students really deserve further investments for their safety uh, returning to school in the fall. And I know the new administration, uh, the incoming administration has made those proposals too. So I'm hopeful that, you know, Congress approves that $1.9 trillion proposal and, um, and we get people vaccinated. We continue to mask. Uh, we continue the physical distancing. Um, and that by August, we're at a place where um, we, 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 we see an end to the pandemic. My, my thought is August at the earliest and probably Thanksgiving is the more realistic um, timeline. And if that hasn't happened, then something's gone very wrong along the way. Um, and so I, I really, you know, I'm, when I ran, I said I'd be transparent with everybody. So that's just me being transparent with everybody. But I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful we're in a movie theater again. Yes, yes, most definitely. And, and James, I, uh, it's one thing I really appreciate about you uh, is your transparency and your honesty in this scenario. So I appreciate that you are sharing that with our listeners today. And uh, also, uh, fingers crossed, there's a new Matrix movie coming out this year, probably, hopefully. And uh, I think that one's not due out until like November, December. So hopefully we'll be able to go see that one on, a, on the big screen. I don't know what's going to be in that movie, but there are probably going to be some very confused alt-right people when they watch that movie. <laughs> I call it a hunch. Um, I think they have... It's been a while since I've seen the Matrix films, but I think they might have misread some of the the themes. Another, another. That's another podcast. But you, you mean the 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 alt right people uh, misread the entire message um, 
uh, about a film directed by trans people. Yeah, I would say they missed the mark on that one. Uh, again, it's been a minute. Um, it's been since 99. I mean, it's been it's been a long time since I've seen The Matrix, but um, called Hunch. <laughs> All right, James. Well, thank you for taking a lot of time to talk with us a little about your day to day and how the pandemic impacted your work and how you're able to educate your students on on things like film and philosophy and literature and um, media literacy. But let's let's shift to the I would say the more fun part of the conversation today. Now, I've asked you to to select three films that helped you through this especially challenging year, and I'm really excited to hear what your picks are. Uh, so these aren't really ranked in any particular order unless you'd like them to be. Without further ado, let's just jump right into that process. Uh, what is the first film you've selected for us today? Let's go in alphabetical order then, because I'm not I don't rank things anymore. Um, I would say there was a movie called And Then We Danced. Ganjava. You just said that, eh? English or cigarette? Talian Nazika. From a moment or in the day. We do all our yes, that machine to Zato will die. That's a shame, huh? All the movies I'm going to choose here are just going to be three of my favorite 2020 films that I saw, but from the Republic of Georgia. And uh, it's about this young man who um, wants to, to, to dance the sort of traditional Georgian dance and is in this dance school. Um, this new kid joins and the teacher clearly prefers <laughs> this, this new kid's style of dancing. So there's kind of this competition there. And uh, wouldn't you know it, our two male leads fall in love. And... Uh, I, I, it was one of those moments where I, I started, I had to research. It's kind of like, you know, like we were talking about earlier, having your phone at home. There were these moments where I'm like, pause. And I'm like, what are Georgian politics? Like, I don't, I don't is know. It, is it, is this like really edgy for Georgia? Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're saying. Turned out very, <laughs> very, uh, they had, um, uh, kind of far-right protest after the film who we were like this is not georgia and it's like oh is it not you know um but um just and i didn't know what their their laws were i needed to know the states like i needed to know where if this love story had a chance so i'm like pausing i'm like what is going on over there what are their what are their laws regarding same-sex marriages and civil unions um and just uh anti-discrimination protections i just i didn't know now i know um and it's a very it's still a very traditional part of the world um and in terms of the dance it turns out that the country had uh in a post uh communist world uh post-soviet uh world really thought it was important to and this isn't gonna make any sense but to make the dance more masculine in their mind move away from anything that they saw as like communist. Right. And they saw, uh, same sex attractions as within that. And so they thought 
to be a strong country, we must portray strength and the dance for our official, you know, it must, it must be that. And so, and you can, you hear this in dialogue from the teacher um, to our, to our main character. And you're just watching like masculine dance. Like, what are you talking? Like, what, what? Uh, like, really? Like, I don't, okay. Um, so anyway, it, it, it's, oh my gosh, it's, I didn't know anything about it. It was one of the very last films of the year I watched. I mean, like one of the very last. I had never heard of it, but I, whenever I'm going through my, um, whenever I'm in award season mode, I'm looking at other critics' top 10 list. I'm looking at Rotten Tomatoes. What kind of has an 80% fresh or higher? Um, I'm looking at other critic groups, um, not just in America, but across the world. And I just have, I just make a list of what I want to watch from there. And toward the end, I saw that this and and then we dance had a like I think hundred percent, maybe high nineties, just something incredible. And I, I I was like, well, what is that? And I watched the trailer. And I was like, oh my god! And it, the cinematography is incredible. I mean, just beautiful. Um, there's a scene, and for this scene alone, it deserves accolades. It's a scene. Oh, I almost don't want to spoil it, but um, where one of the characters dances um kind of playfully to um uh, a song from robin's latest album from a couple years ago honey and i was so shocked to hear the song in a film because it's such a new album and the way the way the lighting in that scene hits at night and the way the two characters like one sitting one dancing i i i was giddy like, so your question of how, movies that got me through the year, like when I watched that film, I just felt this rush of energy. I was like, yes, this is, this is, this is cinema. This is what it's supposed to be. I don't know about you. Do you, have you been like in recent years, like just disappointed by movies that a lot of people like, this is awards worthy and this is so important and, we, uh, and we're going to, and I'm watching it. I'm like, I guess I see how you all got here, but I don't feel it. Yeah. I don't think you're alone in that. And I think especially just with the, I would say that that's more so true with like, like studio films in particular. Um, I feel that way that the, the studio films, people tend to to puff up as, as like front runners and great films. And, and sometimes they are pretty good, but yeah, no, I, I hear you. So when you're watching it, you're just like waiting for the, the pin to drop. You're like, all right, when's this moment that I'm just going to, the lights are going to go off. Yeah. And, and I had watched a lot of, 2020 films like i said by the time i got to and then we danced and so there was nothing that had really really moved me except for one film that we'll get to in a moment um nothing had done it yet and then i watched that and i was like good i was like i knew it i was like i knew i I kept i I go back to waking life it's like i knew you could have this sort of holy moment and uh, without spoiling i will say that the final scene of and then we danced if anyone, uh, no, okay, I will compare it to a scene in in um, uh, the F, I think it's FX Pose um, about drag, kind of a I guess in some ways kind of like a spiritual sequel to the documentary Paris is Burning. But there was there was just this moment at the end of that of of, of this film where I was just like the light. I mean, you can kind of see the way the lights coming in right now in my my apartment. There, it was a version of that, and you know, I'm just sitting there just going like. Yes, use music, use lighting, use 
acting, use costume like that. Cinema, cinema is all of those things, and oh, just incredible. Yeah. No. Uh, so that is uh, that film is, and then we danced. And uh, is that? Uh, do you happen to know where that's available? It's on Amazon Prime. I, you do have to pay for it. I think it's like three ninety nine or something like that. But I, some of the best four bucks I've spent in a while. Awesome. Very good. So check that out. I'll uh, list uh, a link to that in the show notes for you listeners today. Uh, and I really like James how you're describing this is cinema, and it's uh, <laughs> I know it seems like a lifetime ago. There was a whole debate online after Scorsese infamously said that Marvel films were not cinema, um, but there was that whole debate about what is cinema. And I really like your description there, where it's simultaneously the means of all the production coming together to create this beautiful moment. And it's also like deeply personal to you, you know, and that's why cinema is a little different for everybody, but a lot of the same, the ingredients are kind of the same, right? Like all these things came together. And in this moment, I had this emotional, like almost spiritual moment where I was like, this is like truth. This is freedom. It feels great. It feels real. Um, so I, I appreciate you sharing that because uh, I still think that's a, a conversation that really never got settled very effectively last year. So I'm so happy you mentioned that Scorsese article. It's one of my very favorites. I share it with the students. Um, I'll be doing that again, um, probably this semester more importantly than ever. But um, it's funny, the words you just use, what is cinema? You make me think of that Andre Bazan essay. And uh, there is another lesser known essay. I mean, I think it's in the same book, but um, it is... Um, the myth of total cinema it's called it might just be a chapter it might even just be a section within there i can't remember it's so fascinating and i had misread it for a long time i thought i thought he was saying it was just impossible like i really took seriously that word myth there but i reread it with the students a few years ago and it was just like oh i i'm dumb i i got this wrong he was arguing because it was there was that debate and i can't remember i want to say this is the 40s but there was a debate like again what is what is cinema and part of the debate was that the image was the most important, that, 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 that the moving image, you know, that kind of ontology question, like that's the difference between photography and cinema is that you have the still image with photography and you have movement with, um, with uh, cinema. And Bazan just goes one more step. He's like, yeah, but sound. And he's like, and, and, and what he does is he goes back to the late, 18, I want to say 70s in that kind of Moybridge pre-Edison Lumiere moment. And he's citing evidence that in that period, there were already conversations of, of saying it has to be the image with sound. That's how you get total cinema, right? And and I just misread it all those years. I don't know how, but may, you know, some, I don't know. But anyway, so when I watch a movie like And Then We Dance, um, and it's using all those different elements uh, to recreate reality, to represent reality, woo, that's when I'm just like, y you get it? You've done your homework movie? You read Bazan, you know, or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. It's true. And it feels like, to your point, though, I, I feel like even in some of the quote unquote best movies, there is a lack of that a lot of times uh, or a lack of that impactful moment. So um, I think that's a that's a great uh, recommendation. And I think exactly the kind of movie and movie moments that were hard to come by in 2020. So uh, so again, that movie is and then we danced. James, let's let's go on to your second film. What was your next selection? My next one was staying alphabetically here is uh, actually a documentary 
buckle up, everybody, because you're going to have to break it up into probably a four-day viewing, an hour a day. But City Hall? How do we tell the story about what's happening here? Like, what's the story that Boston's trying to tell? We have great prosperity in the city of Boston right now. And one out of every six Bostonians struggle with food insecurity. We need to work together to tackle this issue to get that number to zero. There is no doubt that there are disparities that exist. And there are systemic barriers and policy barriers. And we want to address them. In my years of being president of NAACP, there was never this much focus on being involved in civil rights. Frederick Reisman, he just follows city employees from public works to planning, uh, dealing with housing and homelessness and equity uh, conversations. He follows the mayor who Biden has just appointed uh, to his cabinet. Um, he follows um, just the day-to-day inner workings of city government. And I'm not just talking about the city council meetings. I'm talking about like those, the the boards, the the commissions, the trust, the department meetings. Um, there is a lengthy um, zoning meeting, not not within the the um, the city hall itself, but out in the community where this neighborhood that has just clearly been left behind in terms of so much infrastructure investment. Um, they they this new uh, marijuana. Um, business wants to come into their neighborhood. And it is just this lengthy back and forth where the camera kind of similar to, you know, a cinema verite kind of approach um, that, or, you know, those sort of fly on the wall type uh, documentaries where the camera's just there and just lets people, it's not like talk, these people, it's not talking heads. It's not, it's not that it is. The camera is just in that room and it's just watching reality happen. And, uh, it, it's just engaging and listening to those residents, just for example, in that zoning um, discussion, you, you just feel this, 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 it's, it's getting at these steep social fissures, the lack of trust between the community and the city, this developer. Um, and you see this negotiation that's happening back and forth resident by resident, you know, what, what type of business responsibility they think that this 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 applicant has to to their neighborhood, and um, I just thought it was it was just so. Let me put it this way: I, I don't know that I've seen something that captures how government works as well, and I, I cannot enough recommend it. Um, it, it. It was on PBS, um, so you might kind of Google around PBS. I know I watched it on the PBS app on my roku player um and again it's i think it's four and a half hours long i again am a bit of a masochist so i actually one whole day just watched all i took breaks i'm human um but i was riveted I, i was just like this is it's it was so helpful and for me as an elected official it was just one of those things where it's so hard sometimes to convey what my day-to-days are to people where, uh, you know, it's, it's not that I'm just in a council meeting, you know, I might have a council meeting on Tuesday from eight 30 to, to noon, although they've been going so much longer than that. But then, you know, from one to two, 
I might have a meeting with Public Works from two to three, I might have a meeting with a resident. From three to four, I might have a meeting with a nonprofit. And that nonprofit, it could be about homelessness. The resident, it could be about drainage. The public works, it could be about sidewalk. You see what I mean? Like it is, it, it is a never, it's, it is, it's so much. And I think that this documentary just does an ex- exemplary job of bringing us into, um, how city government works. And I think ultimately makes the case for government, like makes the case that government is people, uh, makes the case that, um, government, I mean, it's kind of quoting from Dante, um, an FDR, you know, governments may err, but better they try than to be frozen in icy indifference. I'm paraphrasing there, but that's, that's pretty much the quote. And, um, and I, it just, it was that reminder and you can see in those meetings where people are just like really struggling to, you know, address youth homelessness and, and, and realizing what some of the pushback is, um, from some of the agencies already addressing the issue or, you know, from residents and equity issues in terms of youth of color who are experiencing homelessness or, I mean, it's just, I, I, I hope that does not sound boring to everyone. I'm telling you it, it was a movie that I, it, it, if I had ranked movies, it would have easily been in my top five. In fact, when I voted, it was. Yeah, no, and I don't, uh, you know, of course, everyone's got to pick their interests, but, you know, we've, we talked a lot about the, the importance of uh, media literacy at the top. I, I also think something that's quite maybe become even more important in the last few years is uh, government literacy just or, or maybe um, policy literacy is probably the best way to put it. And uh, I know, at least from my perspective, ever since I watched The Wire in college, specifically when you talk seasons three and four, and you start to see how city policy impacts all aspects of a community. Um, really became of interest to me at least. So I, I, I think I'm very excited to check it out. It's one of those, I think it came out right at the tail end of last year. So I haven't gotten to it yet for our listeners here in Oklahoma. I believe it is uh, yes on the PBS app. I believe it is also on the OETA website. Uh, make sure to check that out. Um, and again, I think just how does government work? How do, how do these changes, systematic changes work? Having not seen, seen the documentary, James, the, the thing that you described is really, I think, that aspect is what attracts me to it. So recommend that as well. And don't, yeah, and don't feel overwhelmed, everybody. Like watch it in chunks. Like if 30 minutes is what you got, 30 minutes is what you got and just make it manageable. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, and that's, that is one of the benefits, you know, or silver linings, depending on your, your preference of watching things at home versus in the theater, you actually can take an intermission at your leisure. Uh, in fact, I, I just tweeted about uh, this morning, there was an announcement that, uh, Kong versus Godzilla got moved up to March and I was kind of disappointed because I wanted to see it was hoping to see it in the theater um, and I said does anyone else feel conflicted and overwhelmingly the Twitter responses were well I can watch it with my pants off on my couch get subtitles and pause to go to the bathroom so no <laughs> so you know um, so yeah t- you know take advantage of the watch from home experience I'm glad you mentioned the subtitles this will drive my best friend Randy mad um, he he I I'm in a place in my life where I want subtitles on when I'm watching something. Um, I don't know if it's because of my creative writing MFA that I did. And I've just kind of focused more on writing in my mind. Um, it's, it's, it's so important in the way that I think about every shot mattering and everything within a shot mattering. Um, 
I'm very interested in the intersection between the image, the sound, and the words we're hearing. I think it's I think it's all poetry, all of it. And sometimes if I'm missing words or whatever, like for instance, I saw the lighthouse at home. It was a screener a year ago. And as I was watching it with the subtitles, I, I was just sitting there going, who saw this in the theater and who understood it? Like what? <laughs> like I have, I mean, and if they did, whoa, good job. Smarter than me. Cause I was watching it at home and I was just like, without these subtitles, clueless Willem Dafoe's monologues is like clueless like <laughs> well uh, another example from 2020 that I find interesting uh Christopher Nolan's Tenet where I know he has uh, in the past been criticized for you know how audible his dialogue is in various of his films I have to say Tenet is the most aggressive of uh or maybe the worst offender as in there are times when people are talking, but the, the, what they're saying competes so much with the, the sound effects and everything. You literally have to like pause and rewind. What, what did they say? So um, I, uh, I will say whenever I watch that film, I definitely put the subtitles on for that exact reason that you just described there. I tried and the app didn't let me put them on and, and I got mad. I really didn't care for that film. That was a film that is exactly what I was describing earlier, where I know I'm supposed to like it. I, uh, you know, I watched Memento as one of my shelter in place movies because I owned it and um, hadn't seen it in a long time. So I'm a, I'm a fan, um, but I was really disappointed in Dunkirk a few years ago and Tenet did not make it better. And you're exactly right. That is, and talk about just cold, distant characters. Like who are these people? Why am I, I don't understand. Um, was actually kind of proud of our organization for voting it the most disappointing films. Like, good. I thought, I think it was a good pick, especially with all the, just the hype might not be the right word, but maybe it's hype around it being still released in theaters during the pandemic. Um, I, I, you know, I think it was a risk that didn't quite pay off in a variety of ways. On our review, we did uh, for it a, a few weeks ago. Our joke was, well, unlike uh, was Interstellar, um, or even maybe the prestige the, the main character did not have a de- a wife and kid to try to get back home to or something you know there was like that the element of like emotional investment that the audience can easily plug into just wasn't there oh big time I, and, and and i i almost cannot think of another movie that is the example of what i would say is wrong with kind of the big budget and intellectual big budget Hollywood film where it's like who and Dunkirk was the the pulling back of it for me of the veil because I remember watching it and like I don't know 10 15 minutes into it, I was like why am I watching another movie war movie where the lead protagonist is is white straight and male um whereas I had just watched before anyone tries to drag me for that let me just say this I had just watched an eight hour long I think it's Hugh Straken World War One documentary, our episodes each. And I loved it. And one of the things I loved about it, and the same thing with the World War II documentary I watched around the same time that was, I don't want, I mean, maybe 22 hours long. Um, but what I loved about each of those two documentaries was, and it was the first time this has ever happened, where when I was watching something about World War One and World War II, it did not just take place in Europe. It was... We were fighting in Asia. We were fighting in North Africa, the Middle East. And I was like, oh, yeah, world war. You know, like, there it is. And so as I was watching Dunkirk, I was like, why are we not Why are we not making movies that are set in, you know, Cambodia or in Algeria? And why, why aren't we telling the multitude of stories and perspectives 
So I was just bored to tears watching uh, uh, Dunkirk. And then to watch Tenet, it was like, why are we spending all of this money even with a, 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 a protagonist who is of color, why are we doing this? When What's the message? Like, what's the theme? Like, what truths are we trying to get at here? Why are we wasting people's time? <laughs> Do you ever feel like, uh, but we are so off off, uh, off topic. Right? I'll, I'll close it with this. Like, um, and this might be another podcast one day, but Christopher Nolan, uh, uh, certainly a director I love and admire. And I think I was, I was middle of the road on that movie. I didn't hate it, didn't like it, but I will say I agree with your your criticisms are are spot on one there's not really an emotional core and two like what is what is it they're trying to communicate what are the themes that people are supposed to take away and think apply to their life in right. some sort of way and i i just wonder with christopher nolan he's one of those guys who's gotten so much power to do whatever he wants it's almost like the more times he makes a movie the more he becomes almost like um uh, what's the word? He's he is like becoming self parody because he's done it so many times and he's doing the same thing over and over again. We know it's there's going to be a dead wife there, or there's going to be kids to get back to or you know what I mean. There's like the tropes of a Chris Nolan movie are very on display and it it's disappointing to see him not really adjusting or uh, growing as a filmmaker at least in that respect. Totally nailed it. Yeah. Well, uh, let's uh, let's move on to uh, your final selection today. What, James, what is the last movie that comes to mind when you think about uh, films that got you through the the year of uh, unprecedented times? Some people who know me will not be at all surprised by this, but please know I surprised myself when I watched it, loved it, put it in my top five whenever we voted. But the Invisible Man remake. Adrian, he was a sociopath. He said that I could never leave him. He controlled how I looked and what I wore. Then I was controlling when I left the house and eventually what I thought. I mean, I loved it. And and again, when I say I loved it, and it, I just had this emotional response to it. Um, and that's just ultimately what I can't fake. You know what I mean? Like either I feel something or I don't. And I, that particular day, uh, we had had just a very emotional city council meeting, like very emotional. Um, I, I can't remember. I think it had to do with like, race and gender and probably the pandemic it was just a whole mess of a day and um i don't know why but for some reason that day domestic violence was on my mind and i already just felt very emotionally drained council was very long and then i got home did some things came and remember what i did but there was a lot of things i had to do before i could like wind down and then the last thing I did was like, I'm going to watch a movie. I'm just going to put something on. And uh, I have HBO and I was like, ooh, Invisible Man. And uh, I watched it. Could not take my eyes off the screen the entire time. Couldn't do it. So that whole thing we talked about earlier of having the phone and the distractions of laundry and this, 
I just laid there in bed, just staring at my laptop, just like, what? Like, what? Um, you know, um, I don't, I love allegory. It's literally, I mean, you heard what my classes are, you know, right now where they're looking at these sort of allegorical conversations and what's the relationship between the society and the art the society is producing. But I also hate like beat you over the head, like paint by numbers allegory, where it's like walking you through the message. It's like, I'm not dumb. I'm really not. I'm really, really not. So don't treat me like I am. Um, And I thought what Invisible Man pulled off so well is that it is a film about the treatment of women, particularly in the Me Too era. That's been a conversation we're having. But on its surface, it is not, you know, it is a, I mean, it is and it isn't, you know, it's this movie where I think why I couldn't take my eyes off of, off of it was it did such an effective job. The camera did so early on positioning us with the Elizabeth Moss character. Um, And we don't know what exactly she's up to in those opening moments as she's trying to sneak away from her husband and we start realizing going oh my goodness he must be abusive like that's what this is it's kind of like the movie sleeping with the enemy it's kind of got that vibe and and you realize that the the care she's taking to try and get out of this house and it just was so tense maybe being the kid of someone who grew up in such an environment it kind of struck a nerve but i was just with her and i was never not with her for the rest of the movie i thought that film did that film and her performance, like the camera work and her performance do such a great job of positioning us with her experiences. And think about it. I mean, we don't know the backstory in those opening moments. We just we just see this woman in the middle, right? We're in the we're 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 there. And uh I just thought it it nailed it. Like it just it nailed it. Um you know, and it's smarter than the Halloween uh, 2018 film, which I enjoyed, uh, but smarter. I mean, in so far as like that moment where Jamie Lee Curtis says time's up to the, the two podcast uh, interviewers like, Jamie, I'm not I'm not dumb. We are dealing with trauma. I'm here to deal with trauma with you. Let's go for it. But I don't need you to tell me the allegory. Like, don't tell me the theme. And Invisible Man never does. Never. And I thought that was, and maybe I missed it, but it was just very well done. The special effects, I thought the way they made sense of how someone could be, quote, invisible was just like, oh, I just, I had so much fun. But it wasn't like over the top special effects either. I just, those were my three. I just really loved them. I, I think, yeah, I'm right there with you talking about how they're able to put you in the shoes of Elizabeth Moss's character. And yeah, her performance in that is, is, Probably not going to get any awards, though. I, I I do wonder if it should because she's she's really spectacular. And the fact that I myself questioned along with her, maybe she is crazy. You know, like there was a point there was a couple of points where you're like, maybe there's something we didn't know about. There's backstory. Like you said, there's missing backstory. There's something here. And you're like, I don't want to because I'm rooting for her. And obviously that would play into a certain type of trope on its own. But I'm also like the way that her performance worked and the way the camera set up and like the way they sort of threw in the red herrings. There were moments where you're like, maybe nothing's actually going on. Um, But of course, uh, we don't want to spoil the film. There is certainly a a lot of things that occur that make you question and validate certain things about her experiences. So, 
yeah, James, those are great picks, great selections. Of course, uh, listener, that last one, The Invisible Man, I'll have links to all these in the in the show notes. Uh, now, James, before we we've been we've been talking here for a good while, and uh, thanks for you know just taking the time out of your day. I do have, if you're up for it, we have one last lightning round, ninety seconds. Uh, where we'll run down. You can just start throwing anything and everything that you want to throw out there. It could be a, could be another film, could be a television show, a book, uh, heck, it could be a band or a song, like things that got you through uh, the pandemic. What do you think? Let's do it. We let's start. Lord of the Rings, the two towers. I revisited the entire trilogy very early on uh, in shelter in place. And you know, these lines from Frodo, like, and from, uh, I can't remember if it's, Mary or Pitt, but you know, these lines like, I didn't, I wish the ring had never come to me, you know, from Frodo and Gandalf's response, you know, no one, no one wants to live in, in these sorts of times. And you hear that with the Mary and Pippin conversation, cannot tell you how important that was to hear. <laughs> so important. And to see people on the edge of defeat um, with the Battle of Helm's Deep and Every time Gandalf shows up at the end with the the cavalry, I am a blubbering mess. It without fail. Um, John Carpenter's They Live. Uh, rewatched that. Loved it. Uh, I think we're living through that moment of just rampant consumerism at the expense of our 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 souls. Um, Scream Two. If you really want to understand the role of media violence, um, I will always preach the gospel of Scream Two. Um, the PBS documentary, The United States of Conspiracy, I would recommend uh, to kind of better understand how these conspiracy theories are taking hold. Um, the new Flying Lotus album I adored. I think it's great. Tierra Wax on there. It's uh, Solange. You'll have a blast. Um, and then Stacey Abrams' new book um, I thought was just a wonderful uh, way to kind of help think through where we are right now. All right, time. James, you did it. Those were some really great recommendations. Before we close out, I did want to give you an opportunity just for you to give listeners a, a way to find you if they want to keep up with you online. So where can they find you at? Yeah, so never on Twitter. Uh, just make sure that's very clear. We do have an adorable little cartoon on my my Twitter page. It's got like a little telephone from the 50s. It's like, you can call my office. I'm always happy to to do those meetings. Um, but James for OKC, like, uh james and then for and then okc i'm on twitter because i love images in case you guys haven't caught on and then uh facebook although uh so (laughs) um but yeah i'll probably um you know once a week be doing some sort of updates for people um on what's going on in ward two in the city and eventually my top 10 list from last year so of course, fantastic. Uh, and of course, you could, if you're a member or a resident of uh, Oklahoma City, you could just check a, check out some of those uh, meetings you guys have. Every Tuesday, 830 in the morning, uh, every other Tuesday, excuse me, um, you can watch on the City of OKC's YouTube channel. Um, our agenda becomes available the Friday afternoon prior to City Council meetings. Um, if you ever need to reach out to me for official council business, uh, I remember I represent Ward 2. So ward2 at okc.gov. 
All right. Well, there you have it, listeners. Follow James in those ways, and it sounds like he's pretty uh, pretty available to take your calls, emails, or uh, get your thoughts on multiple things. Uh, so, James, before we close out, is there anything else you would like to say about any of these three films or maybe better support your work as a, an educator or a city council person? I also just have to do a quick plug for Sound of Metal. The sound. The sound editing. Oh, my God. I total cinema. <laughs> um, so I would just kind of throw a plug in for that that film as well. And never, rarely, always, sometimes. I might have gotten some of those words mixed up. But um, great film. Great two films. Um, no, um, th- that's all I would really add is uh, check out those two films. Um, and um, just... Follow me on social media, especially this summer, because I'm going to need the community's uh, help as we start revisiting some stuff with the police budget. Um, We've set some really great things in motion for some investments in mental health services and violence interruption programs and uh, homeless outreach that I'm going to need the community's uh, support. um, If you agree with those things, which I'm guessing a lot of you do and hoping so. That's it. Thank you for that opportunity, Caleb. And thank you for doing this podcast and I think Churchill said something about when uh, during World War II, uh, people were like, throw away the art or whatever, and let's just fight. And he's like, then what are we fighting for? I'm getting that story a little off, but so it's very important for people like you to keep doing this work. So thank you. Uh, well, it's uh, nothing compared to all the great things you're doing for our, our city and um, also just for the next generation of uh, filmmakers and just citizens. So appreciate, we appreciate you. So uh, James Cooper, film studies educator, uh, member of the Oklahoma Film Critics Circle and uh, ward to city council person here in Oklahoma City. Thank you so much for joining the Cinematic Schematic today. Thank you. And thank you for, I think, wearing a Legend of Zelda sweater. You caught it. Wow. That is impressive. Good job. That's it, everybody. We'll talk about it later. Thank you. <laughs> Maze on scene, y'all. Thank you for tuning into the fourth part of our ongoing series on three films that got you through the 2020 pandemic with special guest James Cooper. Stay tuned to hear who we'll be talking with next week. Now, if you would like to participate in this series and have your three picks heard, please consider sending us those films that got you through the pandemic to our email address, thecinematropolis at gmail.com. You can send us your picks to have a chance to have them read on the air later in the series. And I'd also like to note that if you did enjoy today's conversation, please rate the podcast and subscribe on your preferred podcast app. You can also find all of our work on The Cinematropolis by following us on Twitter at The Cinematrop or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Cinematropolis. And you can also keep up with more of my work, including my thoughts on films, television, video games, by following me on Twitter at CMastersTalk. That is letter C, Masters Talk. Join me next week when I sit down for a conversation with the managing editor at Collider.com, Adam Chitwood. I'll talk with Adam about his three film selections, as well as how the pandemic impacted large entertainment publications like Collider in 2020. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you again next time.